friends, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfond? We're creeping closer to the deadline. Nine days for us, depending on when people are listening to this, might be even closer. But uh, yeah, the next kind of... I feel like the, the NBA season, or maybe just because of like the line of work we do, I feel like it's always like a a build up to something and then you get that over with and then it dies down for a little bit and then you're building up to the next thing. It's like the playoffs and then, you know, it's the finals and you get like a little bit of downtime and you're building up to the draft and then you get a couple of days and you're building up to free agency. You get some downtime in the summer, you're building up to opening day. Like, I feel like that's kind of the way it is, but deadline day, definitely uh, where a lot yeah, of the action I mean, happens for us. Thinking about the rhythms of an NBA season, it's kind of like early in the season you want to watch every team and you're just constantly trying to figure out what teams are doing, how their pieces are fitting, what their potential might be. And then around this time of year, it's kind of like, you know, I feel less and less like I have much to learn about a lot of these teams, but then the deadline happens and it can be this big shakeup, you know, the couple of weeks, at least after the deadline is when you are trying to see how those new pieces are fitting and you know, how, how the teams look uh, in the wake of this transaction period. And then you kind of hit this point where you're just waiting for the playoffs to start. So I do feel like we're in that stage right now where, and obviously we're going to talk about a bunch of teams today who we are still trying to figure out for one reason or another, but I feel like we've settled into almost a bit of a lull with this NBA season where, you know, like every year, it's kind of the calm before the storm, I guess. And we're we're waiting to see what teams are going to do and how that's going to change the league landscape. But um, we did have some transactional activity, I suppose. You know, we talked about the Rui Hachimura trade on our last episode a little bit. But regarding a player who is, you know, I hesitate to say is not going to get moved because as uh, several people have pointed out, Miles Turner is still trade eligible in spite of the renegotiation and extension that he signed with Indiana. But it certainly seems like he is going to be you know, unless they get absolutely bowled over by an offer, he is going to be a pacer for at least the rest of this season. So why don't we start off by talking about that? Because it's something that we've talked about a bunch this season. And I know you have in particular been an advocate of the pacers just keeping Turner uh, because he's still young. He fits really well with that team. They have, you know, no obvious way to replace him in what he does. And they've kind of restructured his contract so that he's getting an additional $17 million this year, then about $21 million next season, and $20 million the season after that, which I think is a pretty good piece of business for the Pacers. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think it's a fantastic piece of business for the Pacers. I think less so for Miles Turner, and I guess we can talk about that. But yeah, from the Pacers' perspective, getting Miles Turner for two more years at like 20 or $21 million a year as the cap continues to go up is to me a pretty crazy bargain given what he, like if you're talking like non-star division, Miles Turner is almost as good as it gets. Like I, you could argue if the Pacers had, you know, if Halliburton had stayed healthy and maybe if the Pacers had really continued to ascend in the East, like maybe Turner would have been a borderline all-star. But I, you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable in saying he's kind of like, the top of the heap in terms of non-star players. And the big reason for that is like a formula that we've talked about a lot, um, especially when it comes to Miles Turner, but also in terms of just like what makes a big man like that so valuable. Because 
He is one of the game's elite rim protectors on one end and can space the floor on the other end. Like, he he's a phenomenal five defensively. He can almost be like a stretch five or a four if you need him to be offensively. Mm-hmm. He's up to 39% on threes this year, on four attempts a game. Um, and so, yeah, I think getting a player like that for $20 million a year the next two years in, thi- in literally in this economy, like fantastic piece of business for the business for the Pacers. Like you said, I've been an advocate for them keeping him because he's only four years older than Tyrese Halliburton. And to me, you know, if you go now forward with a core of Tyrese Halliburton, who, you know, whether he ends up making it due to health or not, was an all-star this year at 22 years old in his third season, still on his rookie scale contract. Benedict Matherin, in the rookie of the year conversation, probably probably finishes runner-up in legitimate sixth man of the year conversations as a rookie, obviously on his rookie scale deal. Miles Turner now on what I consider a very team-friendly contract. Like, this is how you build something because you've now got a lot of young talent that is, you know, unfortunately for them, not being paid what their on-court value is, but you have the flexibility now to add to that. To Like, I think the Pacers are in a really good spot and I think this Turner contract helps with that. But to my point about like how I look, I, I don't want to say he undervalued himself or like undersold himself because if he's happy in Indiana and this is good for him, like, hey, if he's happy, he's happy. Who am I to say, hey, Miles Turner, you should have done something else. But given everything I just said about him being like basically as good as it gets <clears throat> in the non-star division of the NBA and the way the cap is booming and where salaries are going, like I know Look, he can hit free agency again in 2025. The fact that he he also added the extra money this year, it's 60 extra. It's essentially like he signed a two-year deal for $30 million a year in a way, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know, man. I, I feel like, like if Miles Turner had hit free agency this summer, he's obviously getting way more guaranteed money than this. Or am I crazy? Like... And 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 again, and the one last thing I'll well, say well, is... Well, in I, terms I, of term, right? Like the term... Right. But you don't think he... he you get way more than 20, like way more. You don't think he can get like, you don't think Miles Turner could have got like four, a hundred. Yeah, I think he probably could have. I mean, I would have to sort of sit down and work it out in terms of, you know, which teams would that would actually have the cap space to do that and would have had a reason to sign him to that kind of deal. I mean, that's where it always gets tricky, right? Of course. Yeah. You know, you look at the cap landscape every summer and it's like a small handful of teams that have meaningful space. And usually they're not competitive teams, you know? But right. yeah, I think he, he certainly could have done better than this in terms of term. But mm-hmm. if he's also thinking, you know, okay, so two years from now, I'm going to be 28, 29. And then, you know, we'll see what the market looks like then. I don't think it's a bad bet for him to make necessarily. And so my, my last point on that, just before, because um, I know you'll probably go on now with your thoughts. But I was going to mm-hmm. say, my last thought on that, just to, to piggyback off what you just said is, I guess for me, I always get, a bit nervous or a bit concerned when like the non-star caliber player does, I don't want to say gets cute with their money, but you know what I mean? When they do like, if, if Miles Turner say just took somewhere between 20 to 40 million total less than he could have got on the open market in guaranteed money. But he looks at it as like, look, I'll hit free agency again in a couple of years. I'll still only be 28, 29. Like, it'll be fine. I get that. But I just think that's so much riskier for like the non-stars. Because, okay, the stars, they can, an injury can come up or whatever. Or they could have a bad, like a down year and they're still going to get their money. Whereas it's like, a guy like Wells Turner, I don't know. 
I mentioned he's shooting 39% from three this year. You know, he's also a career 35% shooter. Like if his shooting tails off over the next couple of years, or there is an injury, I just, again, if he's happy, he's happy. But I, I just do wonder if, uh, if he left a little too much on the table here. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll see. I don't, I don't think he left too much on the table. I'll say mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Like, I, I agree. He could have gotten more guaranteed money if he just waited it out and hit the open market. But um, you know, I mean, the best case scenario, I guess, for him would have been that a trade did happen and he went to a destination that he was happy to go to. And then that team obviously would have been compelled to shell out to keep him. And then cap space wouldn't have been an issue. They would have had his bird rights, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, yeah. that's how I suppose it would have worked out best. But I guess it became apparent to him at some point, or maybe he just really wanted to stick around Indiana. Yeah. Um, you know, it could have been that or it just became apparent that that type of deal wasn't going to materialize. I don't think there's a lack of appetite for his services, but just in terms of paying what the Pacers would have demanded in order to get him. And, you know, maybe the teams that were actually interested in making that type of move were teams that he wasn't interested in in playing for a long term. You know, there are a lot of different things to consider, you know, before we can just go and say, oh, well, he, he made a bad deal. He sold mm-hmm. himself short. But I think, you know, the reason that that Turner has been such a popular name in like theoretical trade frameworks over the last few years and the reason it's so fun to like bandy his name about is that there are so many teams that could use exactly him you know and like so many teams where he'd be such a great fit and that's you know to your point why there probably would have been a pretty robust market for him if he'd become a free agent but uh you know i think this is a pretty unambiguous win for the pacers for sure because You know, they they lock him in at like a very reasonable figure for the next couple of years, you know, to the extent that if anything, I would say the sort of amplifies his trade value just because he has basically like the same AAV on his contract, but with more term on it now. Agreed. So they, you know, they retain that theoretical trade chip if they decide down the road that they do want to move him, but they certainly don't have to, right? Like, again, he is 26, he's getting better and is currently in the midst of I would say by quite a ways the best season of his career. And I don't know. I think if you're thinking about the theory of this team, if you're sort of locking in that nucleus, like this isn't really what we're talking about, but I just, I very much like the idea of the Halliburton Matherin backcourt long-term because of how complementary their skill sets are. Like Matherin, his limitations are as a playmaker. So pretty nice to pair him with like one of the best playmaking point guards in the league. And I think, you know, Halliburton in terms of where he is like a little bit deficient is sort of just like that burst and providing that downhill pressure and getting to the rim. Whereas like Matherin does that, you know, as well as any young guard that's come into the league in a really long time. So I'm, you know, obviously defensively is where the the issues are potentially going to come in, but I'm very excited and curious to see what that backcourt looks like moving forward. And then to have a guy like Turner sort of anchoring that, with his rim protection and his ability to space it out and his ability, as we've talked about before to like this season, really apply more pressure as like a role man, you know, getting to the free throw line more, doing a lot more of his scoring around the basket, which in, ter- I think, I, in turn, I think Halliburton helps with that, right? Like I think Halliburton has been a big without reason a why, right, why Turner has been more of that guy. Yeah. And so, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about this, tr- this team moving forward and we, and we're assuming that Turner is going to be there, you know, the obvious next question is like the three and four spots and how they're going to fill those out. And I think particularly at the four right now, that's kind of 
the big question. And that's why, you know, like the, the John Collins theoretical trade that you threw out there a while back, that just gets more interesting to me by the day. Like, I think that would be a, a pretty interesting fit there. And, you know, this is, uh, again, a bit of a tangent, but like if we're talking about guys who are just like perpetually on the trade market and never seem to get yeah. moved, you know, the issue to me with Colin, who's always been, well, he's probably a better fit with Atlanta than he is with any other team in the league. And that's why it's just never going to make sense for a trade to happen because he's not going to have as much value to any other team as he does to Atlanta right now, except for maybe Indiana. Dude. I, I'm on board with you, man. I, I wrote about this for that uh, Deal or No Deal series. I think he and Turner would fit together really, really well because of kind of what I mentioned off the top when I was going on that little mini rant about Turner. Like, Turner is obviously a five defense because of how great of a rim protector he is. But because of the way he can space the floor, like, John Collins is a power forward, but... Mm -hmm. He does most of his damage in like he, his jump shooting comes and goes. I I think he needs to play with a floor spacing big man. I think it is not best suited for him to play with one of Clint Capella or Anyeka Okongwu, like who are also kind of you know more interior scoring guys. Mm -hmm. So I think it makes a lot of sense for John Collins, although he's a power forward for his offensive role. If it was almost more like an offensive center playing beside a floor stretching big man, and I think him and Turner can complement each other so well on the offensive end. I think it would be great for Collins to still have a great defensive player beside him. And Collins himself has become a pretty solid defender. Like he has vastly improved as a defender over the last few years. The, their combination of like work on the glass, like I, I just think they would bring a lot of things to the table as a duo. And because of all that stuff I mentioned, you know, with the fact that uh, between Halliburton and, for at least one more year and Matherin for a few more years, still on their rookie deals, and now Turner on this team-friendly deal. Uh, you know, I had proposed that, like, healed framework, right? Where it was, like, healed and a pick or something for Collins. If they were to do something like that so that uh, Collins' money is the only long-term money they're taking back, like, just say, hypothetically, they did that at the deadline, mm -hmm. they would next season have... Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner, John Collins, and Matherin all under contract for next season for a grand total of $60 million. Yeah, and I mean, the cap space that they had was what enabled them to do this yes. renegotiation with Turner for this season, right? Like, they're very flexible financially right now. And, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways that they could go, but that is kind of the big question to me right now is how are they going to fill out that four spot? Because... I, I guess I wonder, is Isaiah Jackson the answer? You know, they've used him as a backup center for the most part. And I do wonder if maybe he can move into more of a hybrid role where he is like, I think he's got the tools to play the four defensively. And even if he doesn't have the tools to play the four offensively, like playing next to Turner can mitigate a lot of that. And like he, Jackson to me is still fairly mistake prone, but he's a second year player. And man, do his physical tools just like yep. pop off the screen every time you watch him play. So maybe there's something there. Jalen Smith to me isn't it. And I, I agree. Think, I, I actually know, threw him in that uh, hypothetical trade package I had. I was it was like healed and Smith. Um because I, yeah, I, I think he, like he can be a decent backup big. Yeah. Like he's got some offensive polish for sure, but he's he's struggled defensively. I just don't think he's you know anyone's long term answer as a starting four. And I also think you know when the Pacers do get really serious about winning, I don't think going super small at the four, you know, with like Neesmith is the answer either. So yeah. that's 
kind of the big question to me right now is how how they're. I mean, really, the three four spots. Like, what's that going to look like? But yeah. I, you know, apart from that, I think they're well set up. They're well set up in the backcourt, and theoretically, they're well set up at center. I think this is a really nice piece of business for them. Agreed. Okay, let's move over to the Western Conference cash, where things just remain completely chaotic. I mean, the the team I want to talk about quickly right now is the Clippers, who are somehow up to fourth in the West at 28 and 25 with a dead even point differential. I say that like they're they're fourth right now. They're also just one game up in the loss column from 12th. So <laughs> I, it's just the West is just insane right now. Like I was, I said this a few days ago on Twitter and, and it's changed a little bit because right at the time the Lakers were three games out of fourth now they're back to four games out of fourth but still four games out of you know a home court playoff seed you know feels surmountable for a team that you know if they get healthy make a move at the deadline like that feels like something that they could theoretically attain yeah but they won't but i agree with you well it's like you can say that oh only four games back but they have nine teams to leapfrog to get there you know they they still have what three teams to leapfrog just to get into the play-in Yes, they're 13th right now. Right, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, it honestly is fascinating. We probably use fascinating a lot when we're like looking forward to things as the NBA yeah. season rolls on. But this is truly fascinating. The Western well, Conference. What, yeah, and I think it's it's particularly fascinating in terms of like how this is going to impact mm-hmm. these teams' behaviors at the deadline. You know, and like how many of them see this as an opportunity to push and be like, well, it's wide open. Like we're right there. But if everybody has that same mindset, well, it's like, where's the advantage actually being gained there? Dude, I, I wrote about this in a, pe- a few weeks ago, because if you remember like the opening week, I wrote a piece about how, you know, based on the uh, betting odds and projection systems, it was being touted as the most wide open parody filled season, basically in NBA history. So then at the midseason point, a couple weeks ago, I did like a check-in on that and basically saying it's living up to the hype. And one of the things I wrote in that, and I've said it a couple of times on Twitter too, is like more than half the league right now, more than half the league, I think it's 17 teams. And I, I think I did it by like four games, but 17 teams at the time I wrote it could sniff a top six seed, the playoffs proper, and also a top six pick. Like it's unreal. And I think it's been, it's going to make for one hell of a finish to the season. Like we, how often do we talk every year on this podcast, you know, among other NBA fan friends, media friends, about the dog days, right? Like, kind of actually around now, or maybe a little bit after the deadline, things have died down, but it's not quite the playoff push yet. And it's like, oh, the dog days of the season, the dog days of the season. Man, there cannot be dog days this year because there are very few teams who can afford to have dog days. Like, other than, I don't know, Boston, Denver, and maybe like two or three other teams, there's maybe a handful of teams who can afford to have a week or two where they're going through the motions because everything's fine for them. The rest of the league, you go through the motions for a week or you have a, a couple weeks where you just, you're not quite in sync. You're, you're going from like, oh, we might be host, like home court advantage in the first round to holy shit, we got to play for our lives. We're out of the play. And like, it is batshit crazy. Yeah. And so when we have sort of spoken about what this trade deadline could look like, and we talked, especially on our last episode, about how it's going to be a real seller's market because so many of these teams are in the mix and are going to be disinclined to sell. Uh, I just think that that presents a really tremendous opportunity 
for any team that decides, you know, like Utah, potentially Toronto, potentially Chicago, you know, potentially Portland, although I don't think Portland is going to take that step. I don't think Washington is going to take that step, even though they very clearly should. You know, it's like a real opportunity, I think, for those teams to 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 extract maximal value for some of their guys, because so many different teams can talk themselves into having a chance. Yep. Um, so one of those teams that I don't think really has to try that hard to talk itself into having a chance because we know how good they can be at their top, top gear when they're fully healthy, which is something we see, you know, once every couple of weeks, but is still in there somewhere is the Clippers. And I still just don't know what to make of them because the the big thing for me was like, okay, unless Kawhi can get back to being like close to peak Kawhi, I think the offense is going to remain pretty spotty. Mm-hmm. Here's Kawhi over his last 10 games. 29.3 points, 6.7 rebounds, 4.1 assists, 1.7 steals. 57% from the field, 42% from three, 91% from the line, 68.4% true shooting. I mean, if that isn't peak Kawhi, it's uh, at the very least extraordinarily close. Like he has absolutely caught fire. I, you know, I struggle to say that like there's been a marked change in the process. Like I think he's been a little bit more forceful getting to his spots, like creating space, getting to the rim. He he has certainly looked physically more like himself, but he's taking a lot of the same shots that he was before. He's just hitting more of them. And like, that's maybe a rhythm thing. He just had to get that rhythm back after the long layoff, but him playing this way, regardless of the load management stuff that is going to continue to go on and whatever questions are going to persist about the team construction here and how far that can take them. Like if he is playing at this level, then they've got a chance. And, you know, here they are. They're fourth in the West, despite having had like a massively disappointing season to this point. And if he can stay healthy and if him and Paul George can, you know, both stay on the floor and they can develop some kind of continuity moving into the playoffs, then they're going to be a scary, scary opponent. What do you what do you think of where the Clippers are at right now, how Kawhi has been playing and uh, you know, we can talk about this team as a potential deadline player too. Yeah, I think other than the overall offensive numbers, which obviously have been affected by the fact these guys have been in and out of the lineup, I think the Clippers should be feeling pretty good. Like if you had told them you'll only be 28 and 25 after 53 games, maybe they don't feel as good. But because of the way the West is and how compact the league is in general, 28, 25, to your point, fourth place right now. Like I, I think they would take that given how often Kawhi has been out of the lineup. Um you mentioned his numbers in the last 10 games. You could actually even go back to, uh, it was 19 games where I went back through the numbers and saw like when the numbers really started changing and looking more like Kawhi. Even if you go back to his last 19 games, it's not quite as impressive as, as the last 10, but you're still looking at 25.7 rebounds, four assists on 55, 41, 85 shooting. I think... I get what you're saying in that, like, look, a lot of it is still the same process. It's just now the shots are going in. But, you know, I, I think that could also be tied to him feeling better. Like, maybe he's getting more lift on it. Or maybe, like, the mechanics are better. I don't know. But one thing I've noticed, I'd say, in this last maybe month, month and a half, is you kind of watch him and you get that same, like, feeling of inevitability. And I don't just mean inevitability in, like, 
Kawhi will be the best player in the corner. His team's going to win. I mean, inevitability, even in like the small stuff, like Kawhi at his best, when you watched him, he had this like, there was an inevitability that he was going to get to where he wanted to go and where he needed to be on both ends. It's like, he wants to set this shot up for himself. Doesn't matter that this, you know, A-list defenders on him. He's going to get to his spot. He's going to get that shot off defensively. He's going to fight through this screen or like whatever it is. Like he'll be like, he's going to get to where he needs to be, to be in the play and to make a play or to give himself a chance of making a play. And in the last couple of months, I feel like that's back. Like when you watch him, that inevitability kind of feels like it's back or whether the shot goes in or not, he's going to get to that shot. You know, whether he comes up with a steal or not, like he's going to be in the right spot defensively. Cause there was a period when he had first come back where, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, that inevitability didn't feel the same anymore. Like he maybe looked a step slow on the defensive end or offensively, whether it was fatigue or not feeling it, like he wasn't getting to the spots as easily. Sometimes it looked like he was taking a possession off that to me, doesn't look like that anymore. Like it looks, at least from that inevitability standpoint, like Kawhi again. And I'll point out too, if you go back to December 5th, he's played in 22 of the last 29 games. Now, he hasn't played any back-to-backs. If we're being honest, people should probably stop hoping or waiting for that because he might never play another back-to-back in his entire career. And I, I, I'm not even exaggerating about that. So it's like, can he play enough, right? You know, the old adage of there's no back-to-back in the playoffs, but can he even play enough in the regular season to help his team get there? 22 of the last 29 games, that would be like a 62-game pace over the course of a whole year. That's basically, you know, what he did his last finals MVP year in Toronto, where I think he played 60 or 62 games, didn't play any back-to-backs. There was a week or two here or there where they sat him most of the games. And then guess what? Well, his first two seasons in LA too, right? Like that is pretty much what you can, like that's the top end of what you can expect from Kawhi, right? And... Even that, like 60 games, and I know this year he still won't hit it because before this stretch, he obviously wasn't playing enough. But I'm just saying, like even, I wasn't sure if we'd even see a stretch this year where he played in 22 or 29 games, if I'm being honest. So I would say the last like two months have been very encouraging. And if you're a Clippers fan or you are someone like us who still obviously thinks, look, if they're healthy, they're fine. Those last couple months have to be very encouraging. I say all that, the the caveat still is, this is Kawhi Leonard and Paul George's Clippers very easily in two weeks could be talking about the complete opposite and like Kawhi's only played two of the last eight games or him and PG have only played one game together over the last three weeks and they're sliding again and they're in ninth. Like the, this team is very susceptible to those kind of lulls because of the inability to stay available like between Kawhi and PG, but if, if they can even stay on this pace, if Kawhi can play like three quarters of the remainder of the games, I think they'll be right in that mix to to like have a top four seed, maybe get up to third. Um, and then if those guys are on the court in the playoffs, we know what they're about. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say what concerns me still from their perspective, apart from the availability stuff, is I still worry about the lack of playmaking. And I mentioned this before when we've just talked about what's wrong with their offense and how I don't love the process a lot of the time, you know, even when the results have kind of been there, it just like Kawhi has made meaningful strides as a playmaker over the years. So has Paul George, but it's just, it's still not super fluid and it like a Mike Conley type just to sort of be that connector, you know, to 
to put people in the right spots, to keep the ball moving, like to make the kind of reads and the kind of passes that nobody on the team currently is able to make would just go such a long way. And I think Zubac has had a really good season, but beyond him, there's really no center depth whatsoever. So they wind up having to play small a lot of the time. And, you know, they played Moses Brown for a bunch of minutes as a backup five, and that hasn't worked out super well. It's just funny, like before the season, I remember this so clearly, and I even like cited it in one of the pieces I wrote recently, where Paul George was talking about how the Clippers had a chance to like be this revolutionary team that changed the league with their their five wings type of lineups, you know, like just going five out with all wings, like, you know, we're going to be the type of team that teams want to emulate because of how hard it is to guard and like how switchable we are defensively. And now here they are at the deadline and they're looking for a point guard and they're looking for a big man. You know, it's like, it's a nice idea in theory, but you still sort of need those bookends. I feel like to really make it work. And if one of Kawhi or PG was like a, you know, a better playmaker, frankly, they wouldn't necessarily be having these issues. If, uh, you know, if Robert Covington was peak Robert Covington defensively, like they maybe wouldn't be having these issues. It's just, well, yeah, I think again, I'm not saying like philosophically, it's like a completely broken concept that can't ever work. But for this iteration of the team, they clearly still need, uh, you know, some supplemental things that a guard and a big man can provide. Yeah. Like what I was going to say is you don't have to say, oh, like they need a point guard and a center. But every team that wants to compete needs a playmaker and a rim protector. You know what I mean? Like whatever size they end up being, whatever position they technically fill, like Covington you brought up, who is kind of that like small rim protector, like de facto backline help defender, almost like a small center. That, like whatever, that's a form of rim protection. But you, wh- whatever size it comes in, you need playmaking and rim protection. And to your point, the Clippers don't have enough of it. Yeah, and that's why I'm like, I've heard in a bunch of different places, insiders who are kind of in the know saying, well, the Clippers aren't going to trade Terrence Mann. You know, like if it comes down to it and they have a chance to get, you know, like a Mike Conley or a Fred Van Vliet, player XYZ, they're not going to throw Mann into that deal. And that's where I'm like, Okay, I, I really like Terrence Mann as a player, you know, good cutter slasher gets to the rim, can handle the ball a little bit, can shoot a little bit, can defend. That's the kind of player that a lot of teams want and need. But like, he's also a low usage wing, which is not necessarily something the Clippers need more of and not necessarily something they would miss a ton if they were able to use him to address a greater area of need. You know, he's... I don't love using raw stats, but like this is a guy who's averaging eight and a half points a game. Like they're going to cling to him and let that cost them potentially a chance to get somebody like Van Vliet, who I think could help them immensely. That just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I wonder, you know, if that's just posturing and if it's not like, I don't know. I I think that that would be pretty disappointing and kind of a missed opportunity here. I would imagine it's posturing just because, I mean, between the money he spent and everything you've heard about, like, you know, Balmer is just so all in on winning a championship as quickly as possible with this core. And that front office has to understand, like, you know, the, the runway isn't as long as you think it is when you got, when it's like Kawhi and PG, who again can both be free agents as soon as 2024. Like, if there's a team who I think does understand that they do not have two timelines, you know, everyone's always talking about like the Warriors two timeline plan. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's got to be the Clippers, right? That should, if, if not, they're crazy because like, I, I understand the counter to that would be like, well, they've already mortgaged so much of the future. They've already invested so much in this team. Like you can't really afford to like double down on that, dig that hole even deeper. Well, 
if the name of the game is to win a championship and the reason they mortgage that future is to get a championship, which they haven't won yet, then I think it's fine to double down on that and and worry about the future later. Like their future is going to get murky. We know that already. Like that's the position they put themselves in, but they did it to chase a championship. So you can't do those. Like you can't make those moves. Like willingly accept that you're, you know, that murky future because we're going all in for the present. And then like, you know, I won't call it half ass, but like three quarter asset. And then like when you're getting close to the finish line being like, oh, I don't know about this though, because now we're going all in on the present and we got no future. You're basically there anyway. Just finish the job. Yeah, they're they're pot committed already. Like Right. Like, I'm sorry, but think, Terrence Mann, as much as I like him, like you, is not going to be like keeping Terrence Mann is not going to be the difference between whether your com- future is completely boned or not. Yeah, not only that, but like Fred Van Vliet's like two years older than Terrence Mann. And if yeah, money is about 10 years a, older in, in body, <laughs> he's got a lot of miles on him for sure, yeah. but he's played really well lately. Yep. And look, as point guards go, you know, Fred is probably in kind of the bottom 50 percentile as a playmaker. Pure passing, probably Batum is still a better pure passer than Van Vliet is. But like as somebody who can kind of make things happen off of the bounce in terms of getting other guys involved and somebody who can play exceptionally well off of the ball, you know, next to two big wings who like to handle it. I just think that would be such a great fit. And then if money truly is no object, for Steve Ballmer, as we have, you know, every indication to believe that it's not, and their luxury tax bill isn't going to be a concern, well then, great. I mean, you you don't have cap space, so the best way to kind of like circ- uh, circumvent isn't the right word because it's not like anything shady that they're doing, but you you sort of do your free agency work on the trade market. Like 100%. instead of signing Fred Van Vliet as a free agent, get him in the door now get his bird rights and sign him to whatever deal you need to sign him to, to keep him around for another four odd years. You know, like that's no, I'm completely with you. And that's agreed. And that's also why I don't think they should be going after Lowry one. I mean, look, as much as we both love Kyle Lowry hall of famer, he's gonna have a statue in Toronto. Like can't say enough about Kyle Lowry's career, but at this stage of his career, and he's had some flashes here and there this season, but like, He's not playing down the stretch of close games anymore these last couple of weeks in Miami. Like, I, he's getting close to being cooked. I think for what Kyle Lowry is at this stage of his career, the Clippers could actually probably find a guy like that using one of, like, the exceptions available to over-the-cap teams. This so like, whereas Van Vliet is the caliber of player where, like, the Clippers are not sniffing that caliber of player in free agency based on how cap hamstrung they are that's the kind of guy you got to try to swing for to get in the door that you would not otherwise be able to without a trade and so I think if they like I said three-quarter ass this and end up kind of more with like a Lowry than a Van Vliet I think they've missed an opportunity here and just on the optimistic side of things you know we were talking about Kawhi and how much he's come around even when he wasn't playing much like himself they had really really good numbers with him on the floor and I think his defense has actually, even from the start, been quite solid. Like, even when he was struggling a bit offensively, I thought his defense looked pretty good. And um, right now, the Clippers are plus 8 per 100 possessions with him on the floor and plus 10.8 with him and PG out there together. So they have reason to believe that, again, everybody gets healthy, stays healthy, 
they you know make an upgrade on the margins here or there they can be right there like this conference could Absolutely. be theirs you know maybe there's a lot of ifs in that statement that uh make it still unlikely on balance but you know their the, their window is still open and i think to your point they need to be doing everything they can to you know pry it open a little wider or just keep it open a little bit longer and i think that uh they'd be doing themselves a disservice to sort of get cute and be like not nah, terrence man yeah and again i like terrence man a lot i really I, do I, I do too but it's like that's what you makes know, them you, a good trade chip. You, know? you traded Shady Oldis Alexander to be able to put this team together. Now, a few years later, you're going to be like, uh, I don't know if we can finish the job by throwing Terrence Mann in there too. Um, anyway, okay. So that's the Clippers. Why don't we take a break here? Uh, we'll come back and we will talk about a couple Western Conference teams who are slumping right now. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, sticking in the Western Conference, couple younger teams that we've been quite high on for most of this season that are both to varying degrees hitting a bit of a rough patch right now. And I say to varying degrees because it is much more dire for the New Orleans Pelicans currently than it is for the Memphis Grizzlies. Obviously, we know that it's primarily injury-related, but when Zion went down with that hamstring injury, uh, we got on here and we talked about the various ways that we thought they could potentially survive it. And we knew that they had a tough slate of games upcoming and that it wasn't going to be easy for them to do so. I personally thought they would be a little bit better than they've been without him. And, you know, did it hurt that Brandon Ingram was also out of the lineup? Yeah, obviously. Has it hurt that, you know, even in the couple games that he's been back, he's looked very rough? Hasn't helped. But even so, I mean, I was talking then about how maybe they could just really rely on their defense, which had been better than I had expected it to be this season, uh, lean all the way into that and just kind of find a way to survive on offense. But it hasn't happened. They've lost eight straight. They're now 3-11 and since Zion went down. And their only wins have come against Houston, Detroit, and Washington. In that stretch, they're 14th in defense, which is okay, but not as good as they needed it to be to survive the stretch where their offense has ranked 29th. So after you know this great start where they had kind of elevated themselves above the fray and seemed to be in a pretty cushy playoff spot, they're right down there in that morass of teams that we have talked about and written about, you know, all bunched up. And they're all of a sudden in real jeopardy of falling out of the playoff picture. I think they're down to eighth right now. Dude, they could fall which, right out of the play-in picture. That's what I'm saying. They're, they're one and a half games up on the 11th place Thunder right now. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, Zion is going to get back at some point, but things have all of a sudden gotten really uncomfortable for this team. And uh, I guess I'll put it to you. I mean, what, without just saying, well, Zion's out, Ingram's been out, 
and this will all get fixed when those guys are back and healthy and Ingram's playing like Ingram again. Like, has anything jumped out to you in terms of like where this team is deficient that might continue to be an issue even if or when they get healthy? I mean, when they get healthy, I guess would aid this, but you know, whether they'll actually ever be fully healthy for long enough, you know, is the question. Mm -hmm. I think what stuck out to me is how kind of like icky their offense is. And what I mean by that is, look, we came into the year, I think one of my bold predictions is was that like they'd end up finishing with the most efficient offense because of just the combinate between uh, Zion just dominating inside like few players other than Shaq have in our lifetime, um, JV in there as well. And then the combination of like shot creation, playmaking that comes from uh, Ingram and McCollum, like the, the recipe, you know, Trigger Trey Murphy shooting, like the recipe was there for this team to just pour on the points. And they were doing that for the most, they weren't number one, but I think they had got up to like fourth maybe in offensive efficiency before Zion got hurt. Mm -hmm. So I understand that Zion is a big part of that, okay? And if someone had told me, look, Zion's going to miss all this time again, yeah, I'd expect their offense to slide and then Ingram was out too. But I think if you're asking me what's been most concerning for me, it's that the offense as a whole to me just hasn't, impressed me and blown me away the way I thought it would like with Zion off the court this season they have the equivalent of a 28th ranked offense with Zion off the court and both of Ingram and McCollum on their offense is still the equivalent of a 20th ranked offense and I think there's an issue there like they went and got CJ McCollum last year a deal that I um, we you know supported and I did especially with the the whole point of it was like look like you know, Zion's not going to be in the lineup like enough. You need to be able to survive without him and almost bake that into your expectations. Like we need to survive stretches without Zion. McCollum helped Ingram. He was great last year. He's, I think, been pretty good this year. He's had some bad moments, but I think on mm -hmm. the whole has seemed pretty good. Like you made that move to survive stretches like this and offensively, they haven't done that. And it's just perplexing to me. So I'll turn it back to you and say like, what, have you seen maybe with like scheme or I don't know, aesthetically, like what is not adding up here? Because I get it. They are, shouldn't be as good offensively with Zion off the court, but they should be a lot better than a bottom 10 offense with both of Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum on the court. Shouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, shooting's a big one. Like that profiled as an issue coming into the season, mm -hmm. but even with some of those expected limitations, like I think they've gotten, you know, poor shooting production out of guys that, you know, like they, I, I think reasonably could have expected Herb Jones to like replicate what he did last yeah. year, which was, you know, shoot around league average from three on low volume, but like he hasn't done that. He shot really poorly. And uh, Alvarado started off the season shooting really well and he's kind of hit a slump and, uh, like Trey Murphy has hit a bit of a slump after starting the season on fire from deep. And so it's like, given the lack of shooting that was already present, like to hit sort of a team-wide slump at an inopportune time just sort of compounds that. Like they don't have a ton of margin for error on the shooting front. And I think the the playmaking too, because, and again, this is something I I knew they didn't have like a ton of high-end playmaking, but it's like when you have Zion and Ingram and McCollum and JV all out there together or in some, you know, combination, two or three of them out there at one time, their individual and collective gravity, like it's, um, they, they amplify one another in that respect. 
where I mean, especially Zion, obviously, like his his on ball gravity is just enormous and his ability to just explode through tiny gaps and like collapse a defense like that stuff makes having elite playmaking not as necessary. But then, you know, you take him out of the equation and Ingram's out and Ingram comes back and doesn't look like the same guy. And it's like I, I even early in the season was campaigning for cj to be off of the ball more and now that's not really an option for him like he has to be on the ball yeah and so now that's really being exposed because he's seeing like a lot of blitzes and like aggressive coverages right that are taking the ball out of his his hands or trying to make him a playmaker and if you know if you have other guys on the floor who are serious threats not just as as shooters but as cutters and second side attackers things like that then you have an opportunity to capitalize on those advantages. And it doesn't matter that CJ isn't like up to snuff as uh, you know, a lead guard type of playmaker. But now I think that's just really, there's just not enough juice. And that that's the one thing where I'm like, okay, with Zion back, I just don't know that that's really that much of an issue just because of his ability to break defenses with the ball in his hands or without, you know, like he's a tremendous off ball player. And like, that's sort of what I'm saying about, Okay, like you want to load up on a CJ McCollum pick and roll when Zion is lurking as like a weak side cutter, like be my guest, but it's probably not going to go particularly well for you. Uh, But right now they're really struggling with that. So I think the shooting is the one thing that will maybe persist as an issue. And we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum, we've talked about their three point volume and how we feel like they need to, to, to get that up. But that especially looms as an issue when they don't have the interior scoring presence that they kind of rely on. And um, that's why we see them down at 29th in offense during this stretch. So, you know, if we're talking about them as like a deadline team and and ways, I guess, that they need to improve uh, shooting, supplemental playmaking, like they're they're a team that can honestly get in the mix for one of those available point guards, potentially. Yeah, they show how they would how they would cobble the salary together. Uh, I haven't thought, I guess, too much about it. But, you know, somebody like Conley could look really good there as like an offensive organizer. So maybe that's something to think about. And then obviously like on the defensive side, they've made it work this year, but like interior defense and just rim protection is they've been basically bottom of the league in terms of defensive field goal percentage at the rim all season. And it's impressive that they've managed to make it work because their perimeter defense has been quite strong. They're switching a ton and like that's sort of flattening teams out. And like Nance has been really big as a switchable guy who can, you know, play the five, but in any configuration, like they're just not stout enough on the interior defensively. So I, I, I don't I've, think, I was just say, I don't think, I don't think Washington would do it, but do you think if they, if Washington actually wanted to sell off that this would be one of the few like good Porzingis destinations or no? Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think so do. too. Yeah. Um, and I mean, look, how many, times have they been I don't know if they've been like genuinely linked to Miles Turner or if that's just sort of been the the pipe dream that we've all had because of what a nice fit he'd be next to Zion but Porzingis kind of does a lot of the same stuff like he's not he's not the same level of rim protector but uh you know he's arguably a better outside shooter and like overall just like better rounded offensive player and he can still really protect the rim it's it's not crazy when I did uh an unfiltered episode on Porzingis is kind of like mini resurgence this season and, and, you know, him maybe being like one of the bigger trade deadline candidates. 
uh, one of the things I said in that video is that like for teams that are looking that were are hoping to get a Miles Turner, Kristaps Porzingis is almost like a lesser version of Miles Turner at this point in their careers. Mm-hmm. And offensively, he's a better player, but yeah, defensively, and I think the things that teams would be tr- wanting Miles Turner for, I think in those ways. Porzingis is like a, a lesser version of that. Uh, yet, like I said, I don't think Washington's going to do it because they, as always, are seem intent on chasing the play-in. But if they were to, we've talked off-air about how, like, even though Porzingis is back to being a pretty good player on both ends, it's still hard to, like, find a fit for him just because of his game. I think New Orleans is actually one of the few spots where it seems it seems as seamless as it could be for Porzingis. <laughs> I don't think there's ever going to be a completely seamless fit for what Kristaps Porzingis is at this point, but I think New Orleans is as close as it gets. Yeah, and I think if I was looking at an area of weakness that I would want to address, I think I would probably focus more on the rim protection and Mm -hmm. shooting than I would on the playmaking limitations, you know, for the reasons that I mentioned in terms of, okay, you have Zion out there and you have Ingram operating at full capacity and like you can make it work uh, just in terms of like the, the level of attention that those guys garner, you know? You don't yeah. need like elite passing necessarily. So uh, I do think that I would focus more on that. And if you can kill two birds with one stone, like get a shooter and a rim protector in one package, I think that's something to consider. I would wonder, I suppose, who the outgoing salary would be right. in a deal like that. And then like what what assets you'd have to attach to that in mm-hmm. order to get Washington to bite. You know, like does that mean JV is outbound? And then you sort well, of start what- to do... Yeah, when I had mentioned it in that unfiltered episode, I had kind of posited it as like, you know, do the Pelicans consider Kristaps Porzingis enough of an upgrade over Jonas Valanciunas to include him in that deal? Because mm-hmm. I think his salary would probably be needed. Yeah. And that's where it gets tricky because, again, like I do understand the fit issues you start running into there and the value that JV does bring offensively for them. And if you're kind of maybe pl- like plugging one hole but also creating another. So exactly. uh, again, it's it's tough, and I know we're gonna get off track here because I brought up Porzingis, but I, that kind of does explain like we're we're saying the Pelicans might be the closest thing to a seamless fit, but it's still tough to actually make it fit once you start moving guys to bring him in. And again, he also most likely will be a free agent this summer because he can opt out. Yeah, that's tough. I would have to question how much of an upgrade that would actually be yeah. going from JB to Porzingis, and I realize it's not comparing those two players in a vacuum it's about fit and addressing areas of need but i do really like you know the theory of valentunas with this team in terms of just like stacking strengths on top of strengths and like really being a force on the offensive glass and the interior and being able to play out of the post and things like that but Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thought for sure i I just man i just really want to see zion get back yeah, man. soon and i would like to see ingram i mean i don't know it's tricky with the toe right like if he's not i think he said that he feels comfortable out there and it's just about him needing to get his rhythm back um and i didn't watch the game he played against washington which is his second game back but uh, i watched the game they played against the wolves and it was a really tough yeah, he, outing for him yeah. and granted he was being guarded by Jaden mcdaniels and that's the you know that's going to be tough for any wing scorer but he was forcing the issue and just making some questionable decisions and not creating any separation. Like it was, it was a rough watch. So need him to get back up to speed, need Zion to get back. And then we can do a a more complete and accurate assessment of where this team is really at. But for now they're in the muck, man. And they, they got to find a way to climb out of it. 
the Grizzlies are not in the muck. Like they are still very comfortably perched in a top two seed, but they did lose five straight before kind of getting back on track, I guess, a little bit with a win over in Indiana. Unimpressive fashion, I'd say. Like, they didn't really <laughs> look that good in that. No, yeah. But also, like, three of those five losses were by two points or less. Yeah. And, and they were all them... against teams in this West morass that you have spoken of. Like, they were all against teams in the 3-13 to 13 range in the West. Yeah, the loss against Sacramento, I think, no jaw or bane in that game. Um, and then, you know, that obviously, like, the loss at the buzzer to the Warriors the loss at the buzzer to was it the Lakers um their upcoming schedule is still kind of tough too yeah and I think you know look the injury stuff is not as pronounced for them as it is for the Pelicans obviously but Steven Adams is low-key a huge part of what they do and you know his presence allows Jaron I think to be the best version of himself on defense where he can kind of rove and be that free safety. And also if he's in ball screen coverage, he can be super aggressive and come out high and switch and know that he has Adams behind him or vice versa. Like they just sort of amplify each other defensively. But really where Adams helps Memphis the most is on offense, which feels kind of counterintuitive because, you know, he's certainly not a floor spacer. He's not like the most skilled big in the world. He's certainly not a scoring threat. But his screen setting and what that enables their guards to do, and even more than that, like his offensive rebounding is such a foundational part of their offense. And the kind of dirty little secret about the Grizzlies, both last year and this year, is that they are very poor in terms of their first shot half-court offense. Last year, they were 22nd, and this year, 23rd. Didn't you write about last year um, how they had a similar recipe to the Raptors where they did very much rely on creating chaos and, and, and crashing the offensive glass and creating turnovers and getting out and in playing transition. In transition. And, yeah. Right. And that, that hasn't similar. really, that hasn't really changed. They've obviously been even more successful with like, but well, yeah. They, and this the recipe the like, hasn't changed. And it's a good recipe. Like, right. The, the they won 56 the Raptors, games last year. The problem with the Raptors wasn't the recipe that led to them having this outrageous possession differential. The problem was that outside of that, they didn't have much and still don't, you know, like the Grizzlies have that recipe and they also have, you know, John Morant and Desmond Bain to create for them on offense. And they also have legitimate seven footers to protect the rim and rebound, which is something the Raptors don't have. So it's like, if you can have that recipe with like premium ingredients, then it's going to be a damn delicious stew. But if you have the recipe and like, you know, the the ingredients are subpar, then, well, the results are going to be subpar too. Uh, but with the Grizzlies, it's like, yeah, you lose Adams and suddenly, you know, that that poor first shot half court offense is going to be what you're left with because you're not getting second shots to nearly the same extent. And now Jaron, for as magnificent as he's been defensively, you know, we picked him as our defensive player of the year last year and he's been even better than that this year. He's having to do more, right? Like he's having to play the five and be like that one true backline anchor. And that limits what he can do to a certain extent. So I think they're feeling that loss, you know, for the season, their offense has been eight points per hundred worse with Adams on the bench. And since he went out, it's been 27th. So I think just like eventually getting him back will make a big difference. But I think... 
the, p- part of what concerned me a little bit about this team coming into the season was that they got a little too cute in the offseason or maybe a little too cheap, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. And, you know, trading Melton for the 23rd pick and letting Kyle Anderson walk and thinking that they could sort of just fill those spots with with young players and draft picks. And, you know, David Roddy, Jake LaRavia, those guys could very well grow into super productive players. Zaire Williams, you know, he had a pretty good showing in the playoffs last year, and I know he's coming off an injury, so I don't want to judge him too harshly based on what we've seen from him this season so far. He, too, could eventually grow into, like, a high-level role player. But right now, I don't think you can trust those guys. And I think we're seeing this team's depth is really being tested. And, I like, I'm not going to say I told you so, because on the whole, I was still wrong about this team. You know, saying that they were a candidate for regression. They might not win 56 games this year, but I don't think they've taken a step back. You know, I think they are. And and they might not win 56 games because no team in the league might win 56 games this year. Right. You know, I think fully healthy, they are at very worst as good as they were last year, but probably better because of the steps that Mm -hmm. Bain and Jaron have taken. So on, on the whole, I think they're still fine. But like, I do think the fact that they've been thinned out a bit is a bit of an issue and it would be really nice for them to have DeAnthony Melton and Kyle Anderson right now. Like those guys are absolutely balling for those new teams and the Grizzlies, you know, like John Conchar goes out and suddenly it's like, Oh crap. Like we need Zaire Williams now to play crunch time for us in an important game. And Oh no, he just lost Jordan Poole on a back cut on like a baseline out of bounds that cost us the game. And he can't hit the broadside of a barn from three point range. And, how are we going to make this work? You know, so I, I do think, you know, I go back to the off season. I still feel not great about uh, the way that they went about it. But again, I think, you know, on the whole, I'm not super concerned about this team. Like, I think they're still right there as one of the the favorites in the West. Uh, I don't know. What do you think they're missing? What do you think they need? I know you've said before, you think another kind of like big forward, um, you know, maybe OG and little- Anobi. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe, you know, in in the Jaron at center lineup, somebody that can represent a little bit of an upgrade on Brandon Clark. Yeah, exactly. Even, even though the, the Jaron Clark pairing has been really successful, yep. maybe that's a place that they can be a little bit better. Uh, is that, you know, is that's, you, you're looking that's at that on the defensive side? Because like their defense, they're still number one in the league in defense, right? I, I feel like, you know, it's maybe the offensive end where they could stand to upgrade a little bit more, but they also have to balance that against their desire to be like a dominant defensive team. Right. And I think that's, and I know, look, look, you know, there's only one of him, but that is where the OG type or that mold of, you know, it doesn't obviously have to be as good defensively as OG and Anobi. If they can get him specifically, great. But Mm -hmm. that type of player who is a very prototypical, like three and D, like very good defender, you know, doesn't need the ball in his hands, although like OG reportedly wants that, but he's not getting that, but doesn't need the ball in his hands. Um, You don't really need them to like self-create. They need to be like a play finisher on offense and a really good defensive forward who along with Dylan Brooks can guard, you know, the best wing players on the other team and just kind of be that final connector defensively. And you know, honestly, even just like the final connector of a lineup, right? Like plug them in and now you go, whether it's Morant, Bain, Brooks, OG, J- 
Jaron Adams. Like between those six, you can come up with five of those six and have a dominant two-way lineup, to be honest, any way you slice it. I think that just extra bit of lineup versatility, lineup depth, without giving up much on either end that OG would bring them or that mold of player would bring them is to me like that final piece. Like to me, they get that type of player and plug them in. They're ready to win right now and for the next few years. Like they're they're as good as anyone. And you'd want, um, to, keep, you'd want to keep Brooks in any of those deals, right? Or and use I mean, like the the Danny Green salary slot plus you know uh, one of yes. those young guys plus picks for sure. That is in an ideal world what you do if you have to part with Brooks. Then it's really going to be the OG type, right? Because you need someone who can replace what somewhat replace or replace what he does defensively. Um, but with, you know, being a good shooter, but a more disciplined <laughs> offensive player. Yeah. And I think in those ways, OG would obviously help replace them. But yeah, in, in like the ideal way I think of it, I'm not looking at it as like, okay, they're going to upgrade from Brooks to OG. I'm just looking at it as like, they're just going to add a player like OG using uh, the green salary picks and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like but, the you know the Pelicans thing when we're talking about okay, yeah, Porzingis would be really nice there, but if it's just upgrading from JV to Porzingis, then it's you know a much more marginal upgrade. But same right. thing with Brooks, right? Like going from Brooks to OG is an upgrade, but it's certainly not nearly as much of an upgrade as just getting OG in there, you know, in an exchange for players who aren't meaningfully contributing exactly. to your team right now. So they would have to think about that in terms of like what would they be willing to attach right. asset wise if that was the only upgrade they were making was to go from Brooks to OG. Exactly. Um, but I guess I'm thinking, okay, so let's say like these are the two teams I feel like that have been more speculated, I guess, than rumored to be in the mix for OG just because I think a lot of people, they have all their own picks and in the Pelicans case, they have surplus picks. I think the Grizzlies have a surplus pick. They have that Warriors pick in 2024, I believe. I don't know if they have any other surplus picks, but like because of that, like these teams who, you know, have a a need and an impetus to upgrade and like could theoretically be on the doorstep. Um, and again, it's been more sort of like speculated about or or wish casted than it has been like, you know, real like truly reported that they're they're trying to make this happen. But what if instead of that, you know, they give up on the OG pursuit and instead they collectively just plunder the Wizards? So we get Porzingis to New Orleans and we get Kuzma to the Grizzlies. Mm. What do you think about that? I like, I like that. I like that. And it takes less. It should take less to get Kuzma than it does to get OG. But, you know, we were talking about Porzingis almost being like the lesser version of uh, Miles Turner. In some ways, Kuzma is like a lesser version of OG. Now, I, Kuzma probably has more self-creation like offensive pop, not probably without a doubt. Right. But defensively, obviously, although Kuzma's turned into a, a very solid defender, obviously yep. not what OG is just because very few people on earth are what OG is on that end. But I actually like that. Cause that, that's the way I see is like the same way we were saying Porzingis might be a lesser version of miles Turner for teams that were like wanted miles Turner. I do think Kuzma in some, especially defensively is like a lesser version of OG for teams that want OG, but maybe don't want to give up the world for him. Yeah. I think Kuzma would be great in Memphis. Man, this is also the reason why I'm like, if the Blazers could stomach it, I feel like they could really get a haul for Jeremy Grant. I mean, he's an expiring, oh, and he hasn't signed the extension offer, which was like the max extension offer that they could give him. So maybe that would scare teams off. 
but like thinking about you know say the pelicans needs where you know they need shooting and they need rim protection like as a a kind of second side rim protector man jeremy grant really fits the bill and he's shooting like 42 percent from deep this year yep has some self-creation chops you know has has kind of turned himself into a pretty effective isolation scorer he just sort of brings all of that like either one of these teams i feel like would have a reason to sort of shell out for jeremy grant if og isn't in the cards i just don't think that the blazers are going to be willing to take that step well it's but again similar to the wizard i know i clown on the wizards all the time but like I think I mentioned it last week when we had Trill on, um, but the Wizards owe a lottery protected pick this year. Okay, um, you look at the way their like cap situation is going forward, and like how few avenues they'll have to actually improve around Bradley Beal and whatever. Like, if ever there was a year where finally it makes sense for the Wizards to just like accept the tank. Like you don't have to worry about convincing Beal to resign anymore. You've already got him and you're owing him a quarter billion dollars. And like you have a lottery. No, now protected- you have to convince him to waive his no trade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But seriously, like you have a lottery protected first this year. Like it, you only keep it if you stay in the lottery. It's just like, there are so many reasons why, even though it's made sense for them to tank many times this year, especially it makes sense for them. And you can probably get, a really good return for both of Porzingis and Kuzma and start to like collect some assets that way, whether you want to continue to build around Beal or eventually trade them and really hit reset. Like you just give yourself so many more options if you take that route this year and just punt on the rest of one season as opposed to continuing to try to like get one play-in or two play-in games and maybe lose in the first round, but limit your options going forward. It's just... It, it, it just might, yeah, it really is. Like, and we don't even have a rooting interest in whether it's Washington or Portland or whatever. And it's still infuriating for us because it's like, look, I get it. It's easier said from our perspective than it is done from there. We don't know the pressures on the front office. We don't know what the job mandates are. Like, I get all that. But whoever it is that's calling the shots, whether it's ownership or management, even if it's ownership and you're thinking they're cheap, they just want to sell a plan. Like, but can you not think big picture? If like. There's there's ways to make more money down the line by building a more sustainable team if you do this and present yourself with more options as opposed to like chasing one extra home play-in game this year but continually capping your ceiling going forward. It's just, it's maddening. I, I really didn't want to get into another Wizards rant today, although I guess it's kind of a Blazers one too, but like you know what I mean. It's just, it really is maddening and that's for someone that has no rooting interest in those teams whatsoever. But this is the thing. This is what we were saying earlier on you know like there there are so many teams that can talk themselves into having a chance yeah and the teams that kind of talk themselves out of that i think have a real opportunity to remake themselves and really brighten their future uh, because of what the demand is going to be for players who can step in and contribute right away uh so we'll see how that shakes out it's going to be it's going to be a fun couple of weeks But for now, why don't we uh, get to a quick make or miss, and then we'll get out of here. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Yeah, do you want to start, Cash? Hit me with one. Sure. All right. So this is something we've actually uh, talked a little bit off air. The talent dispersal around the league and coming up with the 15 best players and all NBA selections and all that. So in the 34 seasons that the NBA has selected three all NBA teams, there has never been a year where those 15 players come from 15 different teams. 
The last time every All-NBA selection came from a different team was 1973-74 when only 10 players were selected. As of right now, 15 different teams are represented in the top 15 of basketball references value over replacement player metric. Mm -hmm. 14 teams are represented in the top 15 of both ESPN's wins above replacement, in which two Celtics are represented, and 14 teams represented in 538's wins above replacement, two Sixers there, uh, Embiid and Harden. Make or miss, Wolfond. This will finally be the year in this unprecedented season of parity and talent dispersal that the 15 All-NBA players come from 15 different teams. Yeah, man, let's call it a make. I think the teams that you mentioned, Boston, Philly, and then you didn't mention the Lakers, but that's, that's the other team. Like Those are the only ones that I can think of that would realistically be able to put two guys on the All-NBA teams. I think Nets, Lakers, fans would, Nets fans would argue for their two guys, but I... And and the way Kyrie's played lately, while Cade's been, he probably ends up with a shot. But I do think the guard depth in the league is too much for him to eventually crack the top six. That's the thing. Like, yes, Kyrie's been great lately, but you're talking about him in competition with Steph Curry, Donovan Mitchell, Luca if he's listed at guard, Shea, Ja, ja Booker, Halliburton. It's nuts. And so this, the same goes for Harden, right? Like, I think Harden's been amazing this year, but it's just so, so stacked at guard. And again, especially if Luka is a guard, that just makes it that much more difficult. And in AD's case, like, I just don't trust him to stay healthy for long enough to make one of these teams. So that sort of leaves Boston. And then again, if Jalen Brown is listed as a guard, uh, even if he's listed as a forward, I just... He's been great. I listed him as one of my East All-Star starters. But uh, because there's so many... Like, in the East, it's like there's so much more quality front court depth. And in the West, I feel like there's more backcourt depth. And combined, I just think Jalen winds up getting squeezed out. So I'm going to call it a make, man. I think that's going to happen. 15 different teams represented uh, in All-NBA. And just a perfect illustration of the parity that we're seeing around the league right now. So I'm going to hit you with this one. Uh, we talked about this bunched up West and we talked about the Clippers being a team that has caught like a mini little hot streak and it's vaulted them all the way up to fourth. The Suns are just a half game behind the Clippers at 27 and 25. And they're starting to get healthier. Cam Johnson is back. And, you know, I think they really, really missed him, especially with Jay Crowder being out. And since he's been back, they've started to look a whole lot more functional. I don't know how far away Devin Booker's return is but presumably he'll be back sometime in the not too distant future so make or miss cash the suns are still a serious threat to win the western conference wow see the semantics of serious like <clears throat> i can really get in the weeds here with the word serious i'll call it a miss if we're gonna like if you just ask me, do they have a chance to win the West? Yes, mm -hmm. they do. Because the West is compact enough and wide open enough that, of course, if they're healthy with Devin Booker, Chris Paul, Cam Johnson back, Aiton, Mikel Bridges, the way he's played, of course, they have a chance to win it. But if you use the word serious, I'll call it a miss. <laughs> because, I don't know, like, what is serious? Is it like, are they one of the three or four teams, you know, best equipped to win the West? I'd say right now they're not. I'd still take uh, the Nuggets over them. I would take the healthy Clippers over them. I would 
take the Warriors over them still, even though, you know, the Warriors are in that same kind of, there, there's three or four teams, the Grizzlies, you know, if the Pelicans are healthy, I still take the Pelicans, like three to five teams, I'd still consider healthy, better than the Suns. And so, you know, again, as much as I was joking about it, when you use the word serious, that's where I'd probably call it a miss because it's like, can I say they're serious threats to win the West? If I also say they're like the sixth best team when healthy, I'd say no, but do they have a chance? Of course. And I think that is the beauty of the season. And especially in the Western conference is that those top 13 teams, all, but maybe two or three of them, like the thunder can be competitive, but they can't win the West right now. And like, uh, even the Lakers with LeBron and AD, if they don't make another move, I just don't think they've shown enough. But there are like probably six to 10 teams in the West that if things break right, can legitimately make the finals. And the Suns are one of them. But not what if the Suns go, if the Suns go and get OG, does that yes. upgrade them to serious threat? 100%. Okay. Uh, uh, one more quick one for you before we get out of here. And it's my favorite topic, midseason awards talk. So we had this, Ballyhooed matchup between the Nuggets and Sixers on the weekend, pitting Nikola Jokic against Joel Embiid, and the Sixers prevail with Embiid going off for 47, 18, and 5, and you know, hit some dramatic big shots down the stretch. I'm not gonna ask, you know, which one of these guys is ultimately gonna prevail. All I'm gonna say as my make or miss statement for you is for the third consecutive year. Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, in some order, will finish 1-2 in MVP voting. Miss. As possible as that is, for sure, I think that in the end, and as we go down the stretch here, and he continues to pull the Mavs further than they should get, if Doncic doesn't win it, I think he ends up top two. And so I think he will break up the Jokic and Bede one, two finish the duopoly. Yes. And I think Philadelphia Sixers fans are going to be big mad when Embiid isn't even top two in MVP. So you, you do think that Jokic will be, you just think Embiid won't be correct. And look, he had a, he outplayed Nikola Jokic that day. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Clearly outplayed him very much in the mix for it. But over the course of 82 games, I think he he will not be one of the two most valuable players when the balloting is complete. I, I'm calling it a make. Answering my own All question, right. calling it a make. All I right. think we're going three straight. I don't know if the order is going to get flipped this year or not. But I think, uh, yeah, those, those two big men just have a stranglehold on the top two spots on the MVP ballot right now. And I think that's going to continue. So let's leave all that there. And uh, Cash, I'll kick it over to you for a fan shout out before we get out of here. All right. This week's fan shout out goes out to Peter Britton, who hit me up on Instagram uh, a while ago. Actually, it's just taken us a while to get to him. Um, But uh, yeah, reached out on Instagram, said he's been listening to Pound the Rock since we made our 2019 All-Star picks. So four years now, almost from the beginning. Says he has not missed an episode since, although he's admittedly a little behind in playing catch up on the episodes. Um, he was he mentioned he was listening to a December 16th episode, and at one point, uh, Wolfond asked me what's I, I don't remember what we were talking about, but for some reason, Wolfond ended up asking me, uh, 
if there is a subject that would get me animated enough to wake someone from their sleep and I was saying, I don't know. And uh, Peter listening to this shouted at the top of his lungs, dude, it's obviously Kyrie because he knows the rants <laughs> I've gone on about Kyrie. Uh, and then he said his wife heard him yelling at basically nothing while listening to us and uh, thought it was weird that he got so caught up in what he was listening to that he'd offer his suggestion to two people that are not in the room with him. So uh, <laughs> anyway, Peter, we very much appreciate your passion for Pounder, your devotion and passion for Pounder Rock. A, that you've been listening as long as you have and B, that you get so swept up in the content we provide that you do feel the need to interact with us even though we're not there. That's the beauty of this medium, I guess, is that, uh, yeah, people can feel like they're in the conversation and we very much want people to feel like they're in the conversation even if they're not in the room with us, which is also part of the reason why we started doing the fan shoutouts because we did want a way to kind of interact with the people that support the show and allow us to do what we do, like Peter. So Peter, thank you very much for supporting the show. Thanks for reaching out and uh, providing some comedy as well with your reach out. And uh, yeah, the usual call out to all of our listeners out there, whether you, like Peter, have been listening for a long time or whether this is your first time listening, hit us up on social media. Find us on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email us joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Or like Peter, find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. And uh, let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe don't like about the show. Like Peter, tell us a funny moment about you listening to the show, but uh, we will definitely get you a well-deserved shout out at some point in the future. I I really, really loved that call out and that shout out. And uh, I, as I always say, I'm just super appreciative of not only anyone who takes the time to, to write us and let us know uh, how much they enjoy the show, but just anyone who tunes in at any point for any amount of time to listen to us ramble about the state of the NBA. It truly means a lot. And um, it's been uh, it's been awesome doing this for, what is what do we say? This is our fifth season doing this, our sixth? It's 18th. technically the sixth, the, like if you count the first year we did it, we, we, didn't, right. we only did a few months of that season, but it yeah, is. We started right sixth, before the playoffs that year, I think. Right, in 2018. Yeah. But it is technically the sixth different NBA season that we've been doing this. Yeah, which is just wild to me. Uh, you know, taking it all the way back to the, the days when we were running a three man weave with William Liu um, to, you know, this is our 281st episode. So thank you all for listening and making that possible. Keep writing in, letting us know how you feel about the show, good or bad. And uh, we will take the time to read it and consider all that you have said but for now we got to put a bow on this episode we will probably be back later in the week with the second episode until then for joseph Casharo, i'm joe wolf pound the rock 